Today we are in James chapter 3, but before we do read the passage, let's begin with the word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for what your word declares. And thank you, Lord, that we can stand on those promises. Everything in this world seems to be shaking, but you're that rock upon which we stand, unchangeable, forever settled in the heavens, your word. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And now as we read this passage, help us to receive it. Let it work in us. Let it change us. Let us change our attitudes and the way we think about our speech. Lord, thank you for James' um, forthrightness. We need to hear it, and we thank you. It's in your word. And so help us now to receive it in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in James chapter 3. If, you, if you're a guest with us, we just read through the scriptures. We take passage after passage, and you happen to have joined us in the middle of James. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? And it's James chapter 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships. Also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So in the first chapter of James, we have kind of an outline of the whole book and, and the topics that he is going to hit. And in chapter 1, verse 26, he told us uh, that if we don't bridle our tongue, then our religion is worthless. That, that's a pretty powerful statement. Now in chapter 3, he drills down into the importance of the tongue 
in, in teaching for teachers, how they use words, and in everyday life, how we all use words. He exhibits a deep knowledge of the Old Testament to tell us that we should be using the power of speech very carefully. Verse one again, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. During this time in the history of the church, um, they, that James actually the first book of the Bible written, the book of James, um, the church was spreading out into the Greek world and the Apostle Paul's taking that word out to, and other missionaries as well, taking the word out and starting new churches in Gentile regions. But it's still, it's the, the basis of it was still Jewish. And they followed, they took up the pattern of the way that they worshiped in the synagogue. And it was a good pattern for the most part. It was elder-led. Yes, they, they may have had a head elder or rabbi, but then they had um, some back and forth took place, a little more than what we have in our service, more kind of like our Sunday school. And a reading of the scriptures, a very high reverence and respect for the scriptures. But one problem came with that Jewish pattern of worship was the way that they respected the rabbi. He was given so much respect that they even, uh, although the term just generally means teacher, they became, came to think of it as my great one. It became such a respected position that they thought that if anyone helped a rabbi with their needs, they would obtain favor from God. So many new Christians in these new churches that were starting up thought, I want to hold that position in this church. I want people to think if they help me, they're gaining God's favor. So if a person was looking for the respect of men, for prestige, uh, honor that comes from man, they'd be tempted to try to... Uh, reach this position in the church, becoming one of the elders, one of the teachers. And perhaps that's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 8, don't call anyone rabbi. Now for us today, we go, okay, I won't call you a rabbi. <laughs> it doesn't mean much, but for then it meant your you have one teacher. It's the Holy Spirit. So don't look at an individual as your teacher. Recognize the Holy Spirit is the teacher for your life. Now, our flesh nature delights in the praise of man, so they wanted this respect. And there is certainly need for more teachers in the church, but we need informed, humble, godly teachers. We need those who dedicate themselves to understanding the scriptures while at the same time have a personal willingness to submit to what they're teaching and living out an example of what they teach. A teachable spirit over time results in somebody who can teach. A person with a passion to learn the word is a disciple because a disciple means one who learns. Rabbi, teacher, disciple, one who learns. And so since the Great Commission is to go into all the world and make disciples, we all eventually in some form or another become teachers. 
But what James is addressing here is the desire to be the dominant authority, the one that's most respected for all your own personal gain, for the respect of man, for honor that comes from man. The reason James commands the, the church not to vie with one another to become teachers is the fact that he gives here that teachers are going to be judged more strictly. Now, it doesn't mean our sins are going to be punished more harshly, but rather that our deeds will be weighed by what we know. In other words, God will hold us accountable if we don't live what the truth that we know and proclaim. All Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be tested by fire. Paul told us, some of our words and actions seem godly outwardly, but God looks on the heart. And only the words that issued from a pure heart, without mixed motives, without seeking personal gain, words and actions that are led by the Holy Spirit will stand the fire. I've had teachers who, who endured to the end. I mean, by that, they're, they're with the Lord now. Godly men who taught me as much by their words as by their way of life. I had others who had inspiring thoughts, very uh, charismatic in that they had this attraction. And when they spoke, everyone listened. And yet their lives didn't line up with their teaching. God will use the words of people even if they have impure motives when sharing the scripture with God's sheep. But when their works are tested, there will be no reward. Those persons will be judged more strictly for living a hypocritical example while knowing better. We are accountable for what we teach. The word of God is, is his revelation to mankind so if we distort it, if we distort what God is saying or misrepresent it by our, our lifestyle, then we're distorting the nature of God in people's eyes. How many cults have begun because someone wanted to be the one everyone looked to for truth? And they never end well. The followers set their eyes on that leader instead of on Jesus. And the power goes to the leader's heads, and he or she will abuse it. And only by the grace of God will those followers ever break free and go on to live spiritually healthy lives. In some of the worst cases, they're all led to commit suicide, as in the case of Jim Jones. He and all other false teachers will stand before God and give an account of what they've done and the lives they've destroyed. Now, Kent Hughes notes that this problem applies not only to uh, Christian teachers or religious teachers, but to secular teachers as well. He writes, the position of teacher can be deluding in any context, secular or Christian. And then he quotes Alan Bloom, who says, um, dangers which attend the classroom when an adult teacher spends his life in the company of undergraduate youths. Such an adult, he says, is subject to many temptations, particularly vanity 
and the desire to propagandize. And boy, have we seen that. He goes on to say, James goes on in verse two to say, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So there's a connection between this verse and the previous verse, even though it seems like it's shifting in thought. Verse one is a warning to teachers or those who want to be teachers to realize God's going to be, hold them accountable for what they teach. And now he's shifting to all of us, even if we don't have that position as a teacher, to show us the importance of our speech as well. First, James declares, we are all sinners. We all stumble in many ways. And if you think you're free of sin, um, talk with me a minute and I'll show you that you aren't. <laughs> all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We inherited Adam's sinful nature. The glory of God is, is seen in the life of Jesus. He's the standard. And if anyone tells you that they have conquered sin and they are entirely sanctified in essence they're saying I'm like just like Jesus now that's what we all should be working for a toward amen but as Paul commanded Timothy train yourself in godliness ask that person if they think that the person that thinks they is, have arrived if they're completely conformed to the image of Christ is their life an expression of the glory of God as Jesus' life was? That's just a way to remind them we all stumble in many ways, amen? But then James goes on to declare that the one who bridles his tongue is a perfect man. If you can do that, if you can bridle your tongue, you can bridle your whole body, he says. Now, is he contradicting himself? Or is he stating that perfection is impossible because we are unable to master the words that come out of our mouths? I believe his point is that our hearts are in the process of being sanctified. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior and he's come and taken residence in your heart, then he is working at changing you. Little by little, he's, he's giving you this wonderful gift called conviction. You know, when you, you go, oh, I shouldn't do that, or I shouldn't have done that, or I shouldn't have said that. It's his way of helping us to be transformed and then giving us the strength to do it. The tongue is like a measuring rod towards perfection, more so than any other behavior. Compare our words with our saviors and we see just how much we need to grow. He's the only human to perfectly bridle the tongue. And he said so. In scripture, he says that he only said what he heard from the Father and how the fa Father told him to say it. Our mouths are the source of so much sin and destruction in our world. It's no wonder then that monks take a vow of silence, right? They wanna stop sinning and learn to listen before they speak but of course, when they start speaking again, they find not much has changed. 
Man cannot bridle his speech because he cannot change his own heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that when we yield our life to him. The life of a Christian is continually learning to yield to the Spirit. Our flesh is at war with our spirit. And by flesh, I don't mean our body, rather our old self, our self before we came to Christ, before we made him the Lord of our lives. It keeps trying to take back the reins of our lives, it's, and it's a lifelong battle. When Paul said he had run the race and finished his course, he didn't mean he was perfect, but rather that he'd done what God had called him to do. He'd given his all to the work God called him to do, and he knew he would soon be executed and be home with his Savior. Verses 3 and 4, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So now James illustrates what he means by the power of the tongue. His first illustration is the horse. We were, I was just talking with somebody about horses. What magnificent creatures they are. One huge mass of muscle. And you put a 200 man pound, man pound man on his back and he can gallop for miles. In fact, we measure power by horsepower, right? But put that little steel bit in the horse's mouth and we can steer it wherever we want that huge animal to take us. The mouth steers its whole body. Enormous ships can be steered with these relatively fractionally small rudders. Whether it's a speedboat or a giant cruise ship, the rudder will determine the ship's direction regardless the power of the wind or the currents. The pilot can use that little rudder to make the ship go wherever he wants. Verse five, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is illustrating the power of the tongue to affect our entire lives and the lives of others. Though it's small, like that bit or like that little rudder, its effect can be wonderful when inspired by the Spirit or deadly and destructive when unleashed to express the carnal nature. We can see it so clearly in speeches given, for example, by Adolf Hitler. He spoke, or maybe I should say yelled, with such conviction that his audiences were mesmerized. But what he spoke was a lie of a superior race based on evolution. He painted the Jews as, and all those with non-Aryan features to be less evolved and therefore more animal-like and needing to be eliminated from the gene pool. And the result was the extermination of millions. Mao had a similar effect on China. His victims were the educated elite. And the result was similar with millions slaughtered and millions more dying of starvation. The words of these two men killed as many people as soldiers died in the two world wars. It's said that Words are mightier than swords, 
and we can say they're as deadly too. James compares it to a match setting a forest on fire. We've seen fires in California, Arizona, and more recently in Canada, destroying hundreds of thousands of acres of forest, and all started with a small blaze. Those fires are likened to the few words spoken in anger that can have repercussions greater than we would have ever have imagined. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. There are many parts of our body, but James says the tongue has the ability to stain the whole body. Um, sin refers to stain, Jesus had said. In Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. A flurry of words spoken in anger will forever affect the way the recipient of that anger sees that person. No matter how great the apology and the time that passes, it just will not be forgotten. Even if forgiven, it will remain in the background of that relationship. Hasty words have ruined the career of many politicians. For people feel the words were an insight into who the person really is, which is really what Jesus was saying. In premarital counseling, I discuss phrases that should never be spoken in a marriage. Phrases like, I hate you, or I wish I'd never married you, or calling your spouse a vile name. It can be forgiven, but in the end, you're just hurting yourself, for you've sown doubt into your relationship. You may feel that way at the moment, but feelings pass, and words spoken cannot just pass. This destruction of relationships and marriages sets on fire the entire course of life. If your parents screamed some condemning words at you, you probably never forgot it. You know, on Wednesday when we have the homeless uh, with us, we often hear of the harsh experiences of their home life. Except for the grace of God bringing healing, that tension will remain throughout their life. Now James adds this frightening thought, those destructive words were set on fire by hell. Satan loves division, hatred, enmity, and resentment. He loves to destroy families and relationships. Look at the chaos in our own nation. Harsh words set on fire by hell are destroying the family, which is the foundation of our society. Lying words for power or financial gain have broken our trust in our systems. The fires in our forests are nothing compared to the fires set by the words ignited by hell. Broken hearts and lives drug addiction and suicide are so often from the power of words that cannot be forgotten. James wasn't exaggerating when he wrote that they're set on fire by hell. How could those Hamas invaders do such 
despicable acts to women and children and babies? Well, they were taught from their youth at home and in school that Israelis are evil, animals. They teach that their teaching dehumanizes Israelis until they no longer see them as people. The poverty they endured is blamed on the Jews instead of on their leaders and on their previous acts of violence. Words set on fire by hell, setting on fire the entire course of life. And that word in Greek literally means the wheel of life. The fire from the words comes round again and again, affecting the whole life, resulting in broken homes and even wars with untold suffering. You know, after 9-11, there was this attempt to get at the root of why such senseless loss of life happened. And we learned that the source was the radical madrasas in Saudi Arabia, which indoctrinated children from their youth that America had to be destroyed for Sharia law to bring heaven on earth. Children are taught that all problems stem from the existence of the evil Satan USA and the little Satan Israel. The hijackers truly believed that they were serving God and saving the world. That's the power of words. The one who came to kill, steal, and destroy lit the fire with words, and he laughs at all the resulting loss and pain. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird or reptile or sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. In Genesis chapter 1, God gave dominion over the creatures of the earth to mankind. And we train creatures from dolphins to dogs to help us do tasks that we could not otherwise do on our own. We can train monkeys to do sign language. I've seen parakeets do simple math and ride a bicycle. Hawks capture birds for their trainer, and even tigers are taught to perform. I've even watched a diver pet the head of a giant eel with great big fangs in the ocean. Verse 9, but no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. A horse can be broken to yield to a man in just a matter of one day. But try as we may for our entire life and we find our tongue will suddenly go wild again. No human can tame it. The restless evil and deadly poison in the heart issues out from the tongue. And just when we think we've finally mastered it, someone provokes us again and outpours that poison. I put a sticky note on my mirror. It's uh, things that I just really need to get a hold of. And it says, no whining, only praise. I need that constant reminder. We come to church and we sing God's praise and we go home thanking God for his goodness and telling our spouse how grateful we are that we married them. And then that evening, certain buttons get pushed, at, at least from our perspective, 
and that same mouth spews the poison to the love of our life who's made in the image of God. Or we turn on the TV and we hear some news report we disagree with and we start raging against the image on the screen and can't even hear us. Blessing God and cursing those who are made in his image. And to make it worse, we justify it with excuses. May God have mercy on us. Are we hopeless? Verse 11 and 12, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is one of James' questions to get us to look at what we're doing and, and seeing if it lines up with who we declare ourselves to be. And again, he's appealing to Genesis chapter one. Everything produces after its kind. Are we deceiving ourselves in thinking we're a new creation in Christ? What is our well producing? Is it the fresh water of praise and encouragement and thanksgiving and prayer for the lost? Or is it whining and murmuring about sinners, not realizing I am one? What's our fruit? Is the fruit the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience? Or is it the fruit of the flesh? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Are we saved? Now, when we come to Christ and receive him as the Lord of our life and receive his forgiveness, we don't instantly become holy in our actions and words. And everybody said, Amen. But a transformation begins to take place when we receive Jesus as our Savior. And it continues to the day we die, till Jesus calls us home and finishes the work in us, which he has promised to do, praise God. No human can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit can empower us to refuse the old nature and walk in the Spirit. And when we're triggered by someone's word, the Spirit can help us to hold our tongue and even answer with grace. He'll be faithful to show us the root of our anger, if we'll ask him. Pride, disappointment when things don't go as we like, selfishness or some other carnal desire can be at the root of those words that come out of our mouth. We know when we're about to yield to our old nature, I call it, many people call it, a check in the spirit. We know when we're about to yield to that old nature because we get that little voice inside that says, don't say it, pray, ask your heavenly father for the words. Sometimes he just tells me, don't say a word. But examine our heart. The words that irritate us may be the best thing we could hear for our spiritual growth. And if that's the case, we should thank God for them. The Apostle Paul tells us, let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If we see the person who's opposing us as a captive who needs to be set free, a potential brother or sister in Christ, one for whom Jesus died, our whole attitude in response to their opposition will be entirely different. Instead of defending ourselves, we will be desiring to help them out of the darkness and into the light, exalting Jesus as the answer to their captivity. No human can tame the tongue, but if we are in Christ, the Spirit of God in us can make all the difference but we must yield to him and be willing to cooperate with his gentle voice. We must come to the Christ-like, not my will, but yours be done. We must run to the grace of God when we stumble and utter those harsh words or when others speak them to us. For only in Christ can we find the help we need to tame the tongue or forgive others. Remember, in chapter 1, James said, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. So on the one hand, he's told us if we don't bridle our tongue, our religion's worthless. And on the other hand, he's told us no man can tame the tongue. But the implication then is that our religion, which is our faith in Jesus and his transformative power at work in us, will do the work that we cannot do. Just as we were saved by grace through faith, so the bridling of our tongue is a work of the grace of God through faith. Every step of inner and outer sanctification is by God's grace that we receive through faith. So looking into the mirror of God's word, as James said in chapter one, we see how we fail so miserably, but we also see God's power is perfected in weakness. Our stumbling humbles us, and that's a blessing, for pride goes before destruction. Humility helps us lean on the Lord, and with humility, the Proverbs say, comes wisdom. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Jesus warned us that we will give an account of every careless word that we speak. Therefore, let us go to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help and with this great need. May we die daily to our sinful nature that Christ may live in us. And at the same time, do not live in condemnation. Jesus has paid the debt of sin for all who put their trust in him. He tells us that he loves us with an everlasting love. And he's the one who will finish the work that he began in us. Praise God. So if you're here this morning and you have not received Jesus who died for your sins and longs to forgive you of the harm that your words have caused, his grace is reaching out to you, inviting you to receive his love this morning. 
I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song, and then uh, I'll give the benediction.